0: You are listening to audio from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning. <clears throat> I just, um, couple of quick caveats before we get into our text for this morning. Um, First, if you haven't uh, already heard from your gospel community leader, um, which I've asked him to pass along a message to you, um, I just want to give a heads up this morning to to parents that are here. Um, While all the Bible is uh, breathed out by God and useful and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, there's some texts in the scriptures that are hard and maybe more mature in thematic content than others, and this is one of those days. So as a parent, uh, if you are have young kids and want to briefly just look at 2 Samuel 13 14, just really quick, see kind of the themes discussed, and want to step out of the sermon this morning, whether it be now or anytime, honestly, during the sermon, uh, we have a nice new playground, um, and... There's a room upstairs you can spend with your uh, child. Uh, we're not going to be crass in any way. We're not going to be overly detailed in any way. Uh, but nevertheless, there are some uh, some things in this text that um, are just a little more uh, mature in nature. And so I want to give you guys the heads up there. And then and then second second kind of notice slash caveat I want to give is really for all of us. And you know, it's been a it's been a uh, it's been a hard text to spend in this week um, preparing to preach this sermon. It's a text full of, of a lot of darkness, a lot of brokenness, a lot of heartache, and a lot of depravity and pain and frustration with how people in this text respond to really traumatic situations uh, that should know better. And those things, in and of themselves, you know, they're not they're not foreign to the narrative of the scriptures. I mean, they're not. Like anything, like the scriptures, other places don't talk about brokenness and hardship and depravity. They do, but, but the biggest reason why these chapters struck harder, I think, this week for me is that all the darkness we come across in our chapters for this week happen in the context of the family. You know, David's family in particular, the royal family, the chosen family, and I would venture to say there's not one person in this room that's not going to be affected in some way by these verses because we all have brokenness in our families. We all have despair in our families in some ways, that places that are broken that need to be bent, mended and, and brought back together. You know, some of us have kind of some big T trauma in our families. Some of us have little T trauma in our families, but it's all trauma, and every one of us in this room, even in the best families represented here, we have some level of defect that we wish would change Some. Part of our family that we wish the Lord would bind up and heal every single one of us. You know, if God forbid you have ever experienced you know, sexual brokenness in your family, or abuse, or sexual assault. You know, maybe you yourself were the victim of these horrible wrongs and you find yourself kind of kind of stuck in this place of kind of feeling dirty and unworthy and shameful you're going to be affected by this text. If you've ever been in a place where you've been deeply hurt by someone close to you, regardless of what that hurt is, and you have felt hatred and vengeance well up in your heart to, to make things right, you desired revenge against your wrongdoer, you're going to be affected by this text. And If you have a, if you have a passive father, a father who failed to be your protector who failed to be present, a father who failed to discipline his kids when they made mistakes. Uh, If you have any dad wounds of any kind, you're going to be affected by this text. If you have children who are estranged, maybe you yourself are that estranged kid, children who have fled away from you for a variety of reasons and there's some rift in your relationship, you're going to be affected by this text. You find yourself becoming more and more like your parents in all the ways you don't want to be. If your sins and your shortcomings are almost identical to those of your parents, you look at how your parents parented you, how you respond when you're wronged, you look at how engaged or lack thereof you are with your spouse or with your kids how wrapped up in work you've become to the neglect of those you love. If you look in the mirror and what comes into your mind is the phrase, like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. In all the ways you don't want that to be true, you're going to be affected by this text. You know, I could could go on and on with more examples. There's actually like seven sermons in this one chapter I could preach today. But my heart's been heavy I mean, I'm more heavy this week than it has been probably in any text I've preached here as your pastor. Because I know not only has it brought up things for me and my own family, but I knew this text was coming when First and Second Samuel began to be preached through earlier this year, and I knew that for some of you this is going to bring to your heart a lot of pain. And that hurts me as your pastor. It hurts me. But at the same time, I'm going to enter it with you. It's a part of being the body of Christ as you enter into pain with one another. You enter into joy with one another, praise the Lord. But you also enter into pain when it's necessary. And today is one of those times. So we're going to enter into each other's mess with one another, and we're going to sit with each other. We're going to comfort each other. We're going to be still with each other, and we're going to gently remind each other of the beautiful truths that give birth to hope found in Christ. We bear burdens together. We mourn together, and we wait oftentimes together for God's deliverance to come, for his healing to come. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So there, there are no notes this morning. You know, this is a text that doesn't need to be dissected. It needs to be felt. It needs to be experienced. It needs to be entered into so that healing can come. We're going to, we're going to enter into the narrative this morning, and we're going to see light shining in the midst of the greatest possible darkness. Many of us in this room may have ever experienced before in our lives so I say that and as we go through this text I want you I want you just just, just an ask I want you to notice what you're feeling not just not just like internally but I want you to notice it in your body I want you to, to maybe, Notice what makes you feel anxious. Notice what makes your heart beat a little faster. Notice what makes your face a little flush. Notice what may bring cause you to sweat a little bit. Notice if your chest is tightening up just a little bit. That's okay. I want you to sit with that because I want you to notice it because I want you to realize that God made you a whole person, body, soul, and spirit. And stuff like this is felt, trauma felt, by a whole person. And I want you to be reminded that God made your bodies. He made them, and he desires you to trust him with all parts of your being this morning. It's a heavy sermon today. So I want to I pray again for us before we get into it. I ask you to pray for me. So let's pray together. Father, give me wisdom as one of the shepherds of this people to know where to lead the sheep and how to get them there. Bind up the brokenhearted this morning. That's why you came, Christ. You came to bind up the brokenhearted. So do that now to the Holy Spirit. We ask in Christ's name, amen. If you remember back to last week, to the end of chapter 12, Second Samuel, and you know, when David was caught in sin with Bathsheba after he covered his tracks by murdering her husband Uriah, he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, and one of the consequences of David's sin, there at the end of chapter 12, really in the middle of chapter 12 in verses 10 and 11, is this, Nathan tells him, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David had just finally found peace. The warring had stopped on all sides. For one who'd been on the run most of his life, been fighting most of his life, he finally had peace. But one of the consequences of his sin was no more peace, David, but war, war within your own house. No more out there, but in here because of your sin. David's family life, his home, would forever be in turmoil and fractured and broken because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And here, only a few years later, these words begin to be manifested. So I want us to read it together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13. We're not going to read all of 13 and 14. We're going to read some of it. And so let's start in verse 1 of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. Now Absalom... David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So we're probably uh, 20 years now into David's 40-year reign as king over Israel. And we're introduced here in detail for the first time to Amnon firstborn son of David the heir apparent to the throne and it's not a pleasant introduction you know, the first thing we're told about him is that he is internally burning with lust towards his half sister Tamar and it's so consuming in his mind that he's making himself sick And because Tamar is a virgin, therefore probably cloistered off and kept from most men in that day, he's completely at a loss in how to exercise this, for lack of a better phrase, violent passion for her. So Jonadab, his cousin, sees something's wrong, and he concocts a plan. He's a crafty man. It's not very good when that word's used to describe you in the scriptures, but he's a crafty man. He says, they tell your dad you're sick. Amnon, and when your dad comes to check on you, you specifically request Tamar, a meal from Tamar, and when she comes in to give you food, you can see her for yourself, and that's exactly what happened. Let's keep reading, Verse seven, verses 7 through 19. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, go to your brother Amnon's house, prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his side and baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother, but when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. Ask for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. But Amnon would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. She was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Tamar is this picture here of Torah faithfulness. You know, she seeks to serve her brother, not only because her dad told her to, that's what families do. It's nothing out of the ordinary to go serve a sick brother, sick sister. But when she goes, the text tells us in verse 11 that. That Amnon took her, literally in Hebrew, he overpowered her. Tamar makes four different appeals for him to not do what he's about to do. The first appeal is she appeals to the evil of his action in violating her there in verse 12. When when that doesn't seem to be working, he says there in verse 12 again, she appeals to his conscience and says, such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. It's still not working. She appeals to the lasting impact this moment would have on each of them there in verse 13. That's the third way. She says, how would I carry the shame? And she says, you will be seen as an outrageous fool, Amnon, a Nabal. And then finally, when all other attempts fail, she simply asked him to delay his sexual gratification. Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. You know, honestly, that's probably not true. You know, if marrying one's half-sister was a clear violation of the law in Leviticus 18, it was probably just simply a move of desperation. Just trying to say anything to this guy to get him to stop. But he didn't listen. He followed through with this act, and it was truly truly a wicked and just tragic scene. And there are a couple of things I just want to really briefly just pull out of here from these 19 verses so far that we have here. Both points revolve around the sins of others. And the first thing I want us to think about is about Amnon and the impact of generational sin. And what I mean by generational sin is not that sons and daughters are held guilty for the sins of their parents. That's not true. It's not biblical. We're held guilty before the Lord for our own sins. But what I do mean is that sons and daughters, based off of what they saw or did not see their parents do, can be directly influenced or predisposed to act in those same ways. That's what they know, right? That's what I know. That's what you know. I mean, think about it just in kind of like general non-sin ways. I mean, how many times do we joke around about becoming just like our parents? You know, every time I tell Riley to shut the door because she's letting the AC out on a hot summer day, I'm reminded my dad used to say literally the exact same thing to me. I mean, there's something I heard on the regular from my father. and Now, when I say the same thing to my children, it reminds me I'm becoming just like my parents in some ways. But with those general, funny, quirky ways we can sometimes act like our parents for a lot of us in this room, you know, if we took a step back and we're just honest with ourselves about our desires and our behavior, we may be becoming, may be becoming like our fathers and mothers in a lot of ways we don't want. You know, if I could just be transparent with you for just a second, I don't want, I'm gonna say this, I don't wanna disparage or dishonor my father in any ways that would not be showing honor to him in a way that he should be shown honor. You know, growing up, there were a lot of things that my dad did that were very admirable. He was a minister of the gospel, he worked and provided for our family, he coached my T ball team as a kid, the Pirates. We were awesome. Um, he was not many times at many of my high school basketball games. Many things about him were what dads are supposed to do. And for that, I'm really thankful to God. But at the same time, there were many things that he did that were undesirable and still are undesirable. You know, I never had a spiritual conversation that I can remember with my gospel preaching father. I never talked to him about struggles with girls or trying to navigate hormones or dating or anything like that. My mom gave me the talk. My dad didn't give it to me. You know, dad was at church most nights doing ministry to the neglect of hanging out with us, with his wife. And when he did come home, he oftentimes planted himself in front of the TV and wasn't very engaged with us as kids. My parents got divorced when I was 26 years old, in large part because of secret decisions my dad had made since I was three years old. And now, being a husband and a father myself and a pastor, if I'm being honest with you, many times my driving motivation and all these things, rather than being for the glory of God and the good of you, oftentimes my motivating factor is just not being my dad. But there are times when his tendencies begin to creep into my behaviors. That's what I saw. It's what I know. I can be passive. I can be lazy. I can be disengaged. I can put the needs of others above the needs of my family. And those things are direct effects from seeing him And seeing my mom, maybe you can relate to that in some way. Maybe you see things in your own life that you like or things that you don't like that are direct effects from watching your parents and their parents and their parents. Sins of our fathers and our mothers impact us in ways we don't, maybe never will fully understand. And the reason I bring up generational sin here in this text is that the language we see here of of Amnon seeing Tamar and taking her is literally verbatim the same language used in 2 Samuel eleven four when David saw Bathsheba and took her. Like father, like son. It's also the language used of Shechem back in Genesis chapter 34 when he took, saw Dinah and took her. It's also the same language used of Eve when she saw the fruit and she took it. And this is what happens, just as a side note, this is is what pornography is, is it not? You see it, you take it, and you discard it. It's exactly what's happening here and with its increasing violent content that kids and teenagers are just consuming at unbelievable rates these days, you know what habitual consumption of that creates? It creates a bunch of amnons. creates a bunch of boys who grow up to be men whose philosophy and practice of sexuality is seeing, taking, and discarding. of pornography, we are erasing an entire generation of predators, of Amnons. And at the root of sin, of all of our sin, whatever that is, at the root of sin is oftentimes holy desires to take that which we have not been given. We are by nature takers, church, we may not take in such drastic ways that we see here, but our tendency is to take for ourselves rather than give up of ourselves. But completely contrasted with Amnon in this text, who is the epitome of evil in this text. This is half-sister Tamar. And The second point from these verses I want to make doesn't as much concern generational sin impacting us, although it impacts her too, through someone else. But it's the deliberate and wicked acts of other sin impacting us directly. And you see this with Tamar. You know, after Amnon sins against Tamar, the text says that his his lust turns to hatred probably because he knows what he did was wrong and he can't stand to look at Tamar because it reminds him of what he has just done. Earlier in the text, he appeals for her to sleep with him by calling her his sister, come my sister. And now he says, get that woman out of the room. And he sends her away. And he bolts the door. And he he just discards her with no concern at all as to the impact she's about to experience. It's his sister, innocent sister. And when the author here writes of Tamar, he is communicating her innocence and piety in so many ways. In verse 16, when she appeals to the wrongness of Amnon sending her away, what's, what's implicit there is, is the law's command that when a woman is violated in Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 22, that when, when a man violates a virgin woman, he is obligated to take her as his wife and provide for her the rest of her days. That may not seem that loving, but in a patriarchal society where your sole livelihood is dependent upon a man, providing for you, protecting you, giving you an heir. That was everything. And in Amnon sending her away and not following through with obedience to the law in this manner, he is literally consigning her to a life of destitution the rest of her life. No man would marry her now. No man would provide for her now. No man would give her an heir, sons to provide for her when her husband died. She literally had no hope. You know, in his quest to satiate his sexual appetites, Amnon had literally taken everything from her. Everything. And Tamar leaves, and she she tears this, this robe this ornate robe that the daughters of the king would wear, this this picture of purity. She tears it. She puts ashes on her head, in sign of deep mourning, and she goes away crying aloud. In verse 20, her her brother Absalom, her full brother, takes her in. He's going to step in and be that provider that protector of his sister. He tries to comfort her, but the text says, so Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. A desolate woman, literally the Hebrew term means she lived as one laid waste. And then to make matters worse, David, her father, doesn't do anything. He's mad. But the one who was her first protector, her very father, does absolutely nothing. He doesn't punish Amnon. He doesn't try to comfort his daughter. He doesn't act in any way that's fatherly. And in Absalom's mind, her brother, in Absalom's mind, he's thinking. Well, if dad doesn't do anything, I'll take matters into my own hands. And he stores up his anger in his heart, and he waits for the day to take vengeance on his half-brother, Amnon. You know, maybe the story for you hits a little too close to home. You know, in a room this size, it's almost a guarantee At least a few of you have been victims of sexual assault. Someone possibly enticed you with false pretenses like Amnon. Before you knew it, you're left picking up the pieces of someone else's wicked act. And maybe your woundedness was inflicted by someone close to you. Maybe it was even a family member, somebody you trusted someone who should have been your protector but became your perpetrator. You know, in some ways, I mean, that makes the pain even deeper, even more cuts to the heart. And the impact of that act in your life, I mean, it cannot be overstated. I mean, feelings of unworthiness, of shame, maybe even of guilt, follow you around like a shadow. Someone else's sinful actions have forever impacted your life. There are effects in your relationships. Their actions affect your ability to trust people. Their actions affect how you view yourself and your own self-worth. Their actions have made you doubt the goodness of God. And make you question why he would allow something so horrible to happen in your life. There is is literally not one area of your life that is left untouched. And your perpetrator has literally taken everything from you. And you're left trying to put yourself back together. And you have to live your life now in this reality of a past event that has broken you. If that's you, if that's you in this room, I am so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry. You have been, whoever you are, you have been on my heart and my mind all week long, every day. I get into this text, I was thinking about you. My prayers have been for you. Even this morning, I woke up, on Sundays, I wake up really early just to go over my stuff, And, and before Christine or the kids get up, I literally sat in my study this morning, And I cried, knowing I was going to have to preach this sermon to you. I wish I was able to undo and give back to you what you've lost. But I can't. I can't do it. I can only hold up a light, a guiding light a light filled with hope in the midst of the darkness. I trust the Lord, the words of the prophet Joel, that he will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have taken. And listen, your journey if you are a victim in this room, your journey is not just one for you to be lived alone. We are the body of Christ. We are the household of God, the pillar and buttress of truth. We lament together with you. We will seek justice for you. We will parent our kids to be men and women of integrity and respect, teaching them what healthy sexuality looks like so that there will not be other victims down the road at our hands. We will provide resources for you. Listen, one of the the things that we do when you give to this church is we have a whole pool of money set aside for counseling, for help, for aid. We will give that to you. If that's what you need, you can have it. We'll write a check for you today. Just let us know. And we will sit with you. We'll sit with you in the trauma. We'll offer a shoulder for you to cry on. We'll cry with you. We'll pray with you. And we will hold the hope when you can't. That's what we do. We don't have time to read the rest of the story here in thirteen and fourteen. You know, Absalom gets his revenge. He deceives and murders his brother Amnon for his actions against Tamar, and as a result, he flees Israel, knowing that his actions deserve death. And Through this enticement and cunning of Joab in chapter fourteen, and yeah, I'm not going to go into detail. You can read it for yourself. David receives back Absalom. Amnon's dead. Absalom comes back after three years in exile, and he spends another two years basically in exile in Jerusalem, not being able to come before the king. But David eventually welcomes him back into the king's court, again with no punishment at all given to Absalom for his murder of his half-brother. And as we'll see in the next few chapters, Absalom has his own desires to take over the throne that his father now sits on. This is the family of King David. I mean, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy. The violence, murder, cunning, deceit. And this will be the story of King David's family for centuries to come. I mean, king after king after king would come after David and would continue to fail, continue to overlook justice, continue to take advantage of the weak, continue to pursue power in ungodly ways, continue to neglect their families. You know, my study for this week, I came across, uh, I heard it in a lecture on Wednesday. I also studied a little more. This guy named Calfred Broderick. I don't know if you're familiar with his name. He's a professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, particularly in the areas of sociology around marriage and family. And he coined a term called transitional character. And this transitional character was a term used to describe what's needed in families, that experience generational trauma that is perpetuated and passed down from generation to generation. And I wanna read you his definition of this transitional character, because I think it's really helpful for us today and what we need. He says this A transitional character is one who, in a single generation, changes the entire course of a lineage. The changes might be for good or ill, but the most noteworthy examples are those individuals who grow up in an abusive, emotionally destructive environment and who somehow find a way to metabolize the poison and refuse to pass it on to their children. They break the mold. Their contribution to humanity is to filter the destructiveness out of their own lineage so that the generations downstream will have a supportive foundation upon which to build. Productive lives. I read the story and I see the rest of David's lineage down through the years, and that's what his family needed. They needed a transitional character. They needed someone to step in and bring rupture to this cycle of generational sin. You know, maybe for some of you in your families, you see this devastation of sin being passed down through the generations. Your grandparents were divorced, your parents got divorced, and you're here contemplating, do I need to get divorced too? Because that's all you know, that's what you see. It's what you've observed, passed down, passed down, passed down, or think about addiction in your family. Maybe it's alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever the case may be. Your your great-grandparents were alcoholics, your grandparents, great-grandparents were alcoholics, your grandparents were alcoholics, your parents have been alcoholics. Maybe you struggle now with alcohol yourself. Passed down, generational sin, passed down, passed down. Or maybe you desire to be that transitional character in your family. The family of David needed that transitional character, someone to step in, show the people of God what it looked like to be a true king, a true protector, a true provider. A couple of kings in David's line brought some of this, Josiah, Hezekiah, but still, with as much rupture as they brought, there was very little repair. Because anytime you rupture a generational cycle of sin, there must be repair. There must be something to go in its place for the cycle to be truly broken. And just when things were seemingly at their darkest in the family line of David and by proxy in the people of God, a rupture and repair happened in the person of Jesus Christ. As Matthew literally, the very first verse, of the very first chapter tells us, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus being born into this. This is Jesus's family. You think you have a messed up family? Jesus knows what it's like to have a messed up family. He stepped into this jacked up, broken, sin-filled family of David and becomes the ultimate transitional character. He brings rupture to generational sin cycles and repairs those cycles with something beautiful and new. I mean, Jesus came for the Tamars of the world. Those who've been deceived and overpowered, he did this not by taking, but by being taken himself. He comes for the Absaloms of the world. Rather than seeking vengeance on those who've wronged him, he died for his enemies. He laid down his very life for those who've wounded him deeply. And rather than perpetuating his own family history of sin and brokenness, he said, no. No more. And he stepped in and established a new family line. You know, I don't know what your family history looks like. I don't know what sins, the sins are of your fathers and your mothers and how they impact you on a day-to-day basis. I don't know all those things. But Jesus has made us, church, into a new family. A new one. Not a perfect one any stretch of the imagination, but a new family full of brothers and sisters redeemed in Christ with God as our Father and Christ as our brother and the Spirit as our comforter. And we don't take, church. We don't take, we give. We don't abuse the vulnerable. We protect. We don't harbor grudges. We forgive. We act contrary to maybe what we saw growing up and we seek to give the world a picture of what family can actually look like. God is making all things new. Emmanuel Church. God is making all things new. Maybe you're only or the formative, at least the formative experience of of someone's hands. Or hands that took from you. Or maybe the formative experience of someone's feet were feet that walked out on you. One day... transitional character, our King, Jesus Christ, will stoop with hands that were taken for you. He will stoop and he'll take those hands that have never harmed in any way. And he will wipe those tears from your face that someone else's hands may have caused. And those feet that are pierced For your sake and for my sake to put us back together to make things new, he will approach you, not walk away from you. Christ is making all things new. Hear me, listen to me. Christ is making all things new. And he can restore that which has been broken. Let me pray for us. Father, I praise you for Seeing harm being done to your people and not being passive about it. For seeing lives that have been torn apart by the effects of sin, maybe sinful actions from other people and you didn't just stand aloof and you didn't just wring your hands and you didn't just get angry. But you did something about it. You sent your very son to come and to be broken, to repair our brokenness. Father, I praise you that you don't pass down sins to us. You have given us the righteousness of your son. That's what you've given to us. pray for any men and women in this room that have felt the direct effects of abuse, the direct effects of sexual assault. Thank you for being a father to us even when our fathers have failed you are the perfect father to us you are our protector you're our provider the spirit is our advocate and christ is our mediator